And now, for your feature presentation. One, or two, or three, or four, five, force five. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. Hello and welcome to the Force 5 Podcast. I'm your host, ex-video store clerk, wannabe screenwriter, and fellow listener, Jason Kleber. The Chinese Boxer, Switchblade Sisters, The Tenant, All the Colors of the Dark, Malabimba. Tonight, my guest is Sam Deegan. She's done commentaries for all of those Blu-rays and more. She's a film historian, a podcaster, and an author. Her newest book, The Legacy of World War II and European Art House Cinema, is available now. You got a link in the show notes. And uh, before I recorded this show, I thought I, I thought I was pretty well versed in war films. But Sam is really on a whole other level with her knowledge. So make sure to check out the book after she schools you on war films like she did me. Before we get into what I've been watching, I want to direct you to go check out the Incinerator podcast. Both me and Eric Peacock from Soundtracker were on there. We torched Miramax Films with host Billy Ray Bruton, who was on the last show, and had a really, really good time with that. So go check that out. And the incinerator has a thing where you have to vote for who you thought controlled the game the most. And hey, you know what? I'm going to toot my own horn here. I thought I controlled the game pretty well. Eric, formidable opponent. I think we took the, uh, the engineer to task, but go check that out. Go vote for me. Vote for me. Doug reference there. All right, on to what I've been watching. This week I saw two little 80s oddities. Uh, I'm going to start with this first one. There was a pretty good TV show in the late 90s called Early Edition. It started Kyle Chandler as this guy who would get the next day's paper every morning, and it would essentially give him like the day to stop whatever bad stuff he found in the paper. One of the creators of that show was a guy named Vic Rubenfeld, and he's used his clout from that show to teach others how to write for the screen. He now calls himself the suspense guru, and there's even a little TM sign after it. Oh, it's so cute, which means he's trademarked the moniker. It's And this is odd to me, considering he's never written anything else aside from that show, except for one little gem from 1987 called Alien Private Investigator, which also happens to be the only thing he's ever directed. <laughs> Seems so odd to be drinking it on such a strange planet. I don't think I could ever be involved with an alien. Eat, let's die! I'll handle these sons of bitches myself. First of all, doing this drug was almost as good as having sex. Thermonuclear device. Egyptian artifact. Who the hell are you guys? Ah, 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 ah. No goddamn aliens are gonna out macho me. Man, guys like that just make me wanna kick ass. Yeah, you and me both. Yeah, Major League, yeah, both. It's an alien designer drug. I've heard of designer drugs. You've gotta stop this before it kills you! Lighten up. So, let's see what we can learn from the suspense guru by diving into this sci-fi noir mashup. Vic wrote an article called How to Make an Audience Care About Your Protagonist, and he gives a tip in that article that states, quote, the main character has something sad or even tragic that happens to them soon after the story starts, or sometime before the story started. 
There's none of that here. There's absolutely nothing to like about Lemro. He's our titular dick. He's an alien from a planet called Styx and is vacationing on Earth to get to know human beings. He dresses like he sprinted through a Michael Jackson cosplay store and just kept whatever stuck to him from the racks and lacks any kind of interpersonal skills. This is a guy who refers to women's breasts as Major League Yabos and has one friend, a surfer named Rob. He does, however, know karate, and almost spontaneously breaks into dance when he enters his apartment, so if you're into that kind of thing, I guess Lemro's kind of a catch. He's played by Nico Hill, who was in a few Z-grade action films after this with meaty roles like Thug Number no. 3 and Karate Guy. I actually looked him up on IMDb and his profile's kind of bizarre and refreshingly honest. It reads, quote, Nico grew up in a home where addictions, the occult, violence, betrayals, physical and mental abuse were normal. He began drinking at an early age to numb the pain and fill the hole in his heart, spirit, and soul. He went on to become one of the pioneers of cage fighting and fought in Russia and Brazil. He then went into acting and acted in over 30 action movies. As his fame and finances grew, his addiction to alcohol became an addiction to pornography, sex, adrenaline, power, and drugs, lasting roughly 15 years. Because of a bad lifestyle, he had dropped down to 130 pounds, stuttered as he tried to speak while his hands shook uncontrollably, end quote. Seems he's a minister now, which I can only assume he's better at than acting. I do want to take a second and give a shout out to Lemro's friend Rob. He just kind of pops in here and there and adds nothing to the story, but he's doing his best Jeff Spicoli impression and looked like he was having just the best time on set. He's played by a guy named Nerner Cummings. Yes, Nerner, two words. And if I had to guess, I'd say he'd probably got paid for his work on the film with a couple of nickels and a six pack of Heineken. So as the story goes, some bad aliens from Styx come down and introduce the most addictive drug known to man. According to Lemro, if you shoot the stuff five times, you're addicted for life, and if you try to quit, you die. He knows who the bad guys are though, so he's gonna try and stop them. The aliens look just like humans, save for their ears, which are pointy. Nothing a zoot suit hat or some big hair can't hide. The rest of the movie sees the bad guys looking for the other half of a MacGuffin disc, and Lemro and a few other alien pals trying to keep his new girlfriend safe. The big bad guy has a gold skull and crossbones adhered to his front tooth, and it apparently shoots a bunch of acid. Definitely an interesting, although very unsafe weapon that I don't think I've seen before in a movie. The film has a charming cheapness to it. Everything was clearly done on a shoestring budget, and it definitely shows. There's a particularly amusing car chase, as a car driving all alone on a four-lane street just decides to drive straight into the back of a parked car so it can blow up. We also get some amusing laser blasts near the end of the movie that are really poorly done, but again, this kind of adds to the low-budget passion project charm. After seeing Alien Private Eye, I probably would not trust Vic Rubenfeld to teach me how to write for the screen, but I would definitely watch this again with a few friends who are ready to laugh and have a good time. As inept as the entire movie is, it's also a blast. It's so bad that it never gets boring, and right when you stop laughing from... I don't know, Lemro doing his best Billy Jean dance moves. Something else absurd takes its place, like the least passionate sex scene you might ever see on screen, which is followed by the woman saying, in the most bored cadence imaginable, I've never felt anything like that. This Vinegar Syndrome release is Alien Private Eye's first disc release ever, as the film long languished solely on VHS until now. It's a 4K scan of the original negative and features a commentary track from the director that I need to check out, and uh, interviews with the director, the cinematographer, and Lemro himself, Nico Hill. 
I'm also continuing to comb through my physical media shelves to weed out those discs that don't deserve a spot in my library. So my wife wanted to watch something. I pulled out a couple of unwatched discs and we landed on Little Monsters from 1989. Ever wonder why kids get blamed for everything just because their parents can't explain it? Can't do anything. Dead, mister. The reason's right under your bed. Hey, bud, the name's Maurice, and I'll catch you later. What goes on down there is every kid's fantasy. It's magic. Big fry, no teachers, no rules, no homework. <laughs> and the best part is, you don't see any parents telling the kids what they can't eat. We're the reason kids get locked in their rooms. <laughs> We're the reason brothers hate their sisters. <laughs> We're also the reason that parents send their kids back to camp. Little Monster, Fred Savage, Howie Mandel, they act up when the sun goes down. So why is Little Monsters on my shelf? Well, I actually bought this disc by accident because I was stoned one night and thought I was buying the Shane Black Fred Decker classic, The Monster Squad. So I got this thing in. I wasn't about to return it because the cover had Fred Savage and a big blue monster on it. And if there's one thing you can put money on, it's that kids' movies in the late 80s were always way more fucked up than they should have been. So I had to check this out. In the most succinct way I can put it, this is a combination of Monsters, Inc. and Drop Dead Fred. And if that sounds terrifying, it is. The film starts with a moving truck being unloaded as the Stevenson family moves into their new place in the suburbs. Fred Savage plays Brian, a 12-year-old kid who's really taking the move hard. He misses his friends, his school, and his old house, and he's having trouble making friends in his new town, which honestly isn't too surprising when you see him sneak out of bed to make himself a peanut butter and raw onion sandwich for a midnight snack. His brother Eric is played by his real-life brother Ben Savage in his first role. The dad is played by Daniel Stern, who coincidentally played the older narrator version of Fred Savage's Kevin Arnold in The Wonder Years, and his wife in the film is played by Margaret Witten, who had a pretty good run on TV shows and uh, in the first two major league films. The plot focuses on some monkey business going on in the Stevenson household, and Brian finds out that the mischief is being caused by a monster who crawls out from under the bed at night. His name is Maurice, played by Howie Mandel. He's blue, has horns, and wears a leather vest, so you know, he's a badass. He convinces Brian to come down and check out his world, which is every kid's dream. It's like the Outback Steakhouse down there, no rules, just right. You want pizza? Grab a slice. You want to play video games all night? Go for it. You want to climb up into somebody's room and ruin their fucking life? More on that later. There's one catch, though, to the monster world. If you're there when the sun rises, you're trapped below and become a monster yourself. And the world isn't as great as it might seem because we find out that it's run by a terrifying weirdo simply named The Boy. I mentioned before that PG movies in the late 80s were always kind of twisted, and this movie does not disappoint in that regard. The creature designs are really creepy. Maurice has sharp teeth and looks pretty unsettling, but once Brian's dragged into the underworld, there are all kinds of frightening creatures. One even has his face melted off at one point, revealing a green krang-looking thing behind the skin. It is genuinely disturbing. There's another kid that has his head ripped off and tossed into a basket. Now, this is a kid's movie, so there's no blood, but uh, freaky nonetheless. There are also some deep themes here, including a kidnapping, and since it was an 80s kid's movie, of course, 
you gotta have a divorce. And the language, oh my gosh, the language. After encountering the underworld boss's number one enforcer, Maurice says, once he grew that hunchback, he became a real bitch. We also get a few holy shits, a dick, and a ton of hells, and a lot of dams. To be clear, I'm not offended by language, but it amazes me that I could have rented this when I was eight years old and it would have been just fine. This movie really extended its PG rating. There's a lot to like about Little Monsters. I thought it dealt with really heavy issues in a pretty mature way. The kids weren't stupid and get themselves out of jams. These are jams that felt like they had genuine stakes by using their brains. I also thought the relationships seemed really real, which can be hard to get right in a kid's movie. And the creature designs were great. The weak link here is really tough to overlook though, and that's the character of Maurice. Maurice is a Beetlejuice knockoff, but Howie Mandel doesn't have the chops to handle the role in a way that gives him any personality outside of just being really annoying. And he never felt like a monster you'd want to trust no matter how close the script wanted he and Brian to be. The detriment is very clear during a moment at the end of the film that would have been a real tearjerker with a better actor in the role, and I couldn't help but wonder what would have been like if Robin Williams was this character. I also think I would have enjoyed the movie a lot more if it didn't seem so mean-spirited. Part of this has to do with Fred Savage just kind of always portraying characters as smug and smarmy. He's just not cute enough to pull off the sympathy needed, but the other part is because Brian and Maurice cause a lot of damage, and it's not just innocent fun. There's a scene in which they sneak into a girl's room, and because of the film's uneven tone and Maurice's hints at a sexual appetite, I was actually kind of nervous about the threat of a sexual assault. Luckily, it didn't go that route. It does, however, feature a scene in which Maurice and Brian sneak into Buzz from Home Alone's kitchen and replace his apple juice with fresh, warm piss, a stunt that strays from being amusing to being outright vile. This felony and those like it are played for laughs, of course, culminating with a scene of kids being yelled at by their furious parents. But I just felt sorry for these kids. Some of them are probably shipped off to military school for God's sake. It doesn't help that neither of the actual culprits ever have to own up to the damage they've done. It's just kind of chalked up to kid mischief. So the $13 question here is, does this belong in the Kleberg collection? And you know what? I'm gonna hang on to this one. This is a nasty fever dream straight from the bottom of Oscar the Grouch's trash can that was made during an age in which kids' films trusted kids to deal with stuff that was kind of dark and pretty scary. Let's face it, parents these days have become weenies, and I'm proudly putting myself in that camp as well. It's compelling enough to make me want to show my kid, but that won't happen until he's like 15. Just because kids' movies were able to scar me as a child doesn't mean I want my kid to be scarred by them too. This is a Vestron disc. I think Lionsgate has the Vestron catalog and it looks really good. It has a surprising amount of special features, including new interviews, vintage interviews, a vintage press kit, which is really fun, and a feature-length commentary. The highlight is an interview with an eight-year-old Ben Savage that takes place outside of an abandoned cement factory where the underworld was filmed. He was just cute as a button back then and talks about how his brother helped him out on set. It's just a really endearing piece. I liked it a lot. So that's uh, Little Monsters from 1989. If you're into weird kid movies, give this one a shot. It's just about time to get to our top five list, but I know when I'm putting together my list, sometimes it's really hard to make a decision. Like in this episode with Sam Deegan, I mean, there's so many war films. Do I put Operation Dumbo Drop at number five? Does Red Dawn count as a war movie? What about Star Wars? I mean, it's got war in the title. So many decisions, but luckily, my decision-making has never been easier thanks to today's sponsor, Inatech, and their newest product, 
the jump to conclusions mat. This is a mat that has conclusions on it. You put it on the floor and then jump to conclusions. Operation Dumbo Drop? Nope, not at number five. Does Red Dawn count as a war movie? Yep. And Star Wars? Fuck Star Wars. Do you have a tough decision to make? Drop the mat down and jump it out. Is Hot Dog on a Stick worth door dashing? Think again. Should you change jobs? Go wild. Should you divorce her? Lose one turn. Wait, wait, loose, loose one turn? What does that even mean? Lose isn't even spelled right. I see a square that just has question marks in it. All right, I, I, I take it back. This is one of the worst ideas I've ever heard. Let's get to Sam Deegan. Welcome back to the Force 5 podcast. My guest tonight is Sam Deegan. She's a film historian, one of the hosts of the Twitch of the Death Nerve podcast, and an author, among other things. Welcome to the show, Sam Deegan. Thank you so much for having me. I am beyond honored to have you on. Your book sounds amazing. We're going to get to that in a second because it directly influenced the list topic today. But I want to start real quick with your podcast which I just started getting into. I loved, by the way, I love the Candy Snatchers episode. Fantastic. Uh, tell us about Twitch of the Death Nerve, because I think there are a lot of people who listen to this show who'd appreciate yours as well, just based on the movies that you cover. So it really has a broad focus, which I've done other podcasts in the past. Like I started out with this podcast called Daughters of Darkness that was mostly Euro horror focused. and. Twitch of the Death Nerve is definitely our theme that we kind of agreed on going in was psychotronic in kind of a broad sense. So it includes everything from horror movies to art house. And it's just like something different every two weeks, basically, which I have a short attention span. So it's, it's <laughs> nice to feel like we're always exploring something new. Yeah, a lot of cool movies that have been featured on this podcast. Like the next one up in my queue is master of the flying guillotine, which also was number one on my list of top five movie weapons. So a lot of cool movies that you cover that we've talked about in short on this show, but you can get a deeper dive on that one. It's, it's really, really great. You've also recorded a ton of commentary tracks. One of my bucket list life goals, which kind of like started my rabbit hole into your work. I'm a huge physical media collector. I started seeing your name pop up on a lot of discs from my favorite boutique label, Vinegar Syndrome. I I just I love special features on disc and the commentary tracks are my favorite because I think you've learned so much about the movie you're watching, whether that be like the filmmakers or just getting a better understanding of the undertones and influences in the movie from an expert, in this case, you. Um there's there's just a ton. I, I looked up your work on your Patreon, which I will link to in the show notes for listeners. But uh, question before we get into like all of your favorite movies, but what are some of the films that you've done commentaries for that you really love? Mm, that is a difficult question. I feel like this thing, <laughs> whenever anyone asks me that, this thing happens to my brain where I forget every commentary I've ever done. Uh, but luckily right now I happen to be sitting in front of, or at least near the shelf where I have all my contributors copies so I can, you know, at least <laughs> find some inspiration. 
my favorite ones, a lot of my favorite ones that I've done really are for vinegar syndrome because they let me do things that I think some other companies, you know, wouldn't go anywhere near. Like one of my probably proudest, most unexpected things to have worked on was, uh, Abel Ferrara's first movie that he doesn't want to be associated with. And so his name isn't on the box, but it's called nine lives of a wet pussy. It's a hardcore film, but it's also this really kind of amazing, like Euro horror influenced movie. Like it's just such a, a strange kind of wonderful thing. Uh, definitely my recent favorite, which I also did with them is called Ebola syndrome. If you don't know anything about Hong Kong category three movies, it's going to blow your mind, but it's really wonderful and disgusting and <laughs> over the top. Uh, but also I love that I get asked to do such a range of things. Like I've also done a lot of art house movies and, you know, stuff that I'm really proud of. Like recently I got to work on the Miklos Yangshow box set that Kino Lorber are putting out. And he's a wonderful Hungarian director whose work should be talked about alongside all of the major European art house people. But for some reason, I think because of accessibility, he, he hasn't been. Yeah. I have the Ebola syndrome disc on my shelf. I haven't watched it yet, but I'm looking in, Looking forward to digging into it. In terms of your favorite non-war films, what are some of those? Just to give listeners uh, an insight into your tastes. Oh, my tastes are all over the place. I <laughs> I feel like it's maybe easier to talk about like my favorite directors than favorite films. But I'm one of those people who loves making lists, but then like agonizes over all the things not <laughs> on the list. <laughs> uh yeah, welcome to my life. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. Um, definitely Fritz Long is one of my favorite directors. Uh, I wrote a book on his film M, and mm -hmm. I do love a lot of film noir and sort of German expressionism, but I'm also a big Hong Kong movie fan. So, you know, the standard stuff like A Better Tomorrow but also category three movies like untold story. Um, I'm also a big European art house fan, which we'll of course talk more about in this episode. Like I've seen all almost 50 of Fassbender's films. Uh, I love Pasolini Melville. The list sort of goes on and on. And I, I really also should shout out, Lucio Fulci because I I got my mm -hmm. my start kind of being obsessed with movies as a young teenager through his films and other Italian horror movies. Uh, you know, looking at today's topic, I will be honest, Sam. I was a little intimidated reaching out to you to be on the show because normally I feel like I've got a really deep movie library in my brain. But looking at your work, your podcasts, your commentaries, your essays, your books you are like encyclopedias ahead of me in that regard. <laughs> so normally on the show, I'll be the one coming up with some of the deeper cuts while the guests typically have more mainstream stuff, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be flipped this time, which is kind of cool. I'm totally looking forward to 
becoming the student in in this topic. I mean, I know that just because your book is one that dives into the subject of war way deeper than your typical like mainstream films do. The book is titled The Legacy of World War II in European Art House Cinema. I will put a link in the show notes to whatever link you want people to go check it out at. Tell us a little bit about the book before we get into our picks today. So the book really started with a grad school essay on a movie that I won't mention yet because it's on my list. Uh, And it just sort of grew from there. I was raised by my grandparents who both grew up during World War II. My grandfather was like slightly too young to be in the war, but was in the Korean War right afterwards. And my family is mostly of German heritage. So it's something that we talked a lot about as a, like as when I was a kid and just kind of the meaning of being German and celebrating your heritage while also being fully aware that nationalism is, you know, can lead to the worst atrocities in the world. And I think that connection between sort of politics and trauma and this idea of sort of fascism and the people trying to resist against it, I think are themes that are still applicable today, certainly more than they have been in a while and i i guess like i just got fascinated with the way that certain directors who lived through the war intentionally made films that can't really be thought of as propaganda and one of the things that we can talk about when i run through my list is i always kind of have hated mainstream war movies because they're nothing more than propaganda. So I wanted to look at how certain directors were making movies kind of opposed to that idea. Got it. That's, that's interesting. I am very confident that we're not going to have any crossover (laughs) on our two lists. We might, you never know. My list is pretty random. I like, I definitely, so I chose three things that I talk about in my book, but then I chose two other things. So I, it's like, I tried to kind of keep a balance and not have it all be like 1970s European war movies. All right. Well, I guess we'll see what those, with those other two, where we line up Uh, again, I'm ready to learn about some of these films I need to check out. Sam Deegan, are you ready to get into this list? As ready as I'll ever be before I start regretting things I didn't include on it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what's going to happen? You know what's happening here right now? You know what's going to happen? No, 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 no. Mine, my list is in chronological order just because I felt like it should have some order. And I feel like the first one is a good place to start, uh, which is Jean Renoir's 1937 film Grand Illusion, which have you seen it? I have not, but I know there's a Criterion disc, so it's always been on my list of things to pick up during a sale. So that is actually how I first saw it. I like back when Netflix discs were you know, a thing before any kind of streaming media, 
I would just add as many Criterion discs as I could to my Netflix queue. And so that was how I first saw a bunch of things that I had, you know, heard of, but had yet to track down. And Grand Illusion blew my mind. Like, when I decided to watch it, I was a little hesitant because like I said, I, I don't really like straightforward war movies, mm-hmm. but this is just incredible. So it's made in 37, right on the cusp of world war two. And it's a world war one movie that is basically about these French officers who are on this mission And they're taken prisoner by uh, this German officer. And they wind up mostly having these really intense conversations that sympathize both the French and the Germans. And the whole theme is sort of that war is bad for everyone and no one wins, which was really radical at the time. I mean, I think it still is, but especially in the late thirties to make a film about that in particular. Yeah, no kidding. I have not seen this one. I really need to see this one. And yeah, just like you, I used to just get everything I could from the Netflix disc queue. This one just kind of like escaped me, but I'm looking forward to checking out. Um, is this your favorite of Renoir's movies? Oh, I don't think so, but maybe it's so it's such an incredible movie. Like it has these amazing performances like Jean Gabin is in it and he's, you know, one of the best actors of all time. Eric von Stroheim, the who's I think is mostly known as a director plays like the head German officer. And it's, I think Renoir made a lot of great films. Like, of course, Rules of the Game is a classic, but this one mm-hmm. might be my favorite because of how downbeat it is. Like, unexpectedly so. And there's this really funny Orson Welles anecdote where he apparently thought this film was so perfect that he said if if he ever had to go, like if his civilization was being destroyed and there was an arc, this is one of the two movies he would bring on the arc. (laughs) (laughs) That's uh, the grand illusion from 1937. I'll have to seek this out. Um, Wow. Okay. This is going to be a stark difference to my number five here, which I'm just going to get out of the way because I I know that you're not a huge fan of the mainstream stuff. I kind of, when it comes to war movies, I tend to go a little bit more towards the mainstream stuff. Um, I like you, I don't love the propagandist aspect of a lot of war movies. I think that this one really does put forth that kind of vibe when you're done watching it, but uh, it's 1998's saving private Ryan. Eight soldiers were chosen to find one man. Some private lost three of his brothers and he's got a ticket home. They didn't know how. It's a tough assignment. That's why you got it. They didn't know where. They didn't know why. What's happening? Finding him. If that earns me the right to get back to my wife, well then, that's my mission. Tom Hanks, Edward Burns, Tom Sizemore, Matt Damon, Saving Private Ryan, a film by Steven Spielberg. Rated R. Starts Friday, July 24th. It was one that I saw with a packed house on opening night. And there were people in the theater, like walking out after the storming of Normandy. One guy I remember like 
sobbing in tears. I think that's why it's stuck with me so much. Again, this might be like the default answer for a lot of people when it comes to top war films. Directed, of course, by Steven Spielberg, won five different Academy Awards. I still am a little baffled that Shakespeare in Love won over it for Best Picture, <laughs> but that's where we are. Uh, especially when it won things like Best Director and and all the a lot of the technical categories. Uh, but if you haven't seen this movie, if you're if you're one of these one listeners who hasn't seen Saving Private Ryan, it's about this group of soldiers who has a mission to find Private Ryan, whose brothers have all been killed in action. So they want to bring this one guy home. And there's a, a great quote from Miller, who's played by uh, Tom Hanks, of course, where he says, someday we might look back on this and decide that Saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god awful shitty mess. It's got a great cast of actors that I really like. Matt Damon is is Private Ryan, um, supporting team like Tom Sizemore, a sober Tom Sizemore, Edward Burns, Barry Pepper, who I think is a great character actor, Adam Goldberg, Giovanni Ribisi. And if you've only ever seen Vin Diesel in movies like Fast and Furious, he's actually acting in this role, which is neat. Uh, it feels like an, an authentic war film just in terms of like the practical effects and then the equipment they were using it just feels technically brilliant feels epic um, which is a little strange because I, I watched it recently and it felt so epic to me but there's really just five locations where everything takes place it's just they were used really well and fleshed out it is bookended with some really sentimental stuff because this is a Spielberg movie and I don't think he'll ever get away from that nope but I still really love it. And I think that even with the action sequences, it never glorifies the violence of war, which can be a fine line to walk. Although I do think that it it uh, glorifies the United States. It's it's definitely um, it's a different experience watching it now than it was then. But I still think it's a really well constructed movie and I still really like it. Uh, putting those things to the side, if that makes sense. It does. And I think with a lot of war movies, you have to be able to kind of separate those things out, whether you're, you know, talking about it from a critical or historical perspective, or just trying to enjoy it. Like a lot of the movies on my kind of honorable mentions list are war movies that are kind of war action movies that do glorify the violence in a way that, you know, I think you get used to if you're somebody who likes watching a lot of exploitation movies or action movies, but it can leave a really bad taste in your mouth. And I, I feel like I should come out and say that in the intro to my book, I talk about exactly what I'm including in the book and what I'm leaving out. Like my focus is really on movies made in countries that were occupied or in like fascist countries. So countries that were like an active site of war. So there are no Spanish films in there because Spain was neutral, for example. Yeah. And I talk about how the movies I'm describing are intentionally going against mainstream war propaganda and Spielberg is one of my examples of like something I hate that I, <laughs> that I'm not, <laughs> that I'm not covering at all, but you know, he, he's in a, he's making American films. So I, I think it is a different thing making more movies here in Hollywood than in Europe. 
Oh, yeah, 100%. It was clearly geared towards a very specific audience, and that one audience was America. Oh, yeah. And I knew, I knew just because of the the title of the book and the description of the book that this would not be on your list. <laughs> I'm not surprised. <laughs> That's why I like just kicked it off with it, just to get it out of the way. Um, Sam Deegan, number four for you. This one actually is a Hollywood movie, so it's kind of nice that we're making this transition, but... My next movie is Ernst Lubitsch's 1942 classic To Be or Not To Be, which could not be more different from Saving Private Ryan if it tried. To Be or Not To Be is truly an outstanding motion picture, an exciting romantic comedy key to an ever-mounting tempo of suspense. To Be or Not To Be brings you the screen's beloved star, Carol Lombard, in the kind of role that won her the applause of millions. And that mirth maker of the movies, that Casanova of the radio, your favorite comedian, Jack Benny, in something entirely new, something surprisingly different, and it's hilarious all the way. To Be or Not To Be is a swift-moving comedy melodrama, enriched by the magic that sparkles in every Ernst Lubitsch production. It's the picture everyone will want to see. It is a black comedy. But it's also a really grim movie made by one of the greatest filmmakers of all time who left Germany on Hitler's personal shit list. And this movie basically was geared towards making the Nazis as angry as possible. And if you haven't seen it, it comes highly recommended. It's one of my favorite films. It's about this acting troupe who are rehearsing and performing a Hamlet production, which is why the title is To Be or Not To Be. And they are in Nazi-occupied Poland. And so the movie was made in 42, which was a brutal, brutal year, especially for a lot of the Eastern European countries. It was when some of the death camps were set up and it was just an awful time. And I think Lubitsch was one of the few directors in Hollywood because that's where he left Germany for who was really aware of what was going on. And while he doesn't necessarily talk about everything directly, he alludes to it in a way that most of the other Hollywood war movies in 42 didn't. It's brutal, but it's also hilarious. Well, this is another one I have to add to my list. Uh, this is Jack Benny and um, Robert Stack's in there too, right? Yeah, and Carol Lombard, who is, you know, perfection in every movie, but she's incredibly funny here. And it's just so sad because she, after uh, the production was completed, she died in an airplane accident. And so this came out right after her death. And so I, I think that sort of kind of cast a little bit of a pall over it. I need to see this one, too. You're just like uh, adding titles to a very long list of movies I need to watch. I'll go to one that I think is, I guess I would label it my deep cut on this list. And it kind of plays off of my number one in a bit of a different way. But this one is a movie from 2004 called Taiguki, The Brotherhood of War. A Korean film. Have you ever seen this one? I haven't. So this one was directed by uh, Kang Ji Yu, who also directed a World War II film later on in 2011 called My Way. That's really good. 
but this one is a little more epic. It feels like Saving Private Ryan in that it has like these very brutal, realistic battle scenes, but also has a lot of sentimentality, including some bookended stuff that I don't think works uh, 100%, but I still really like it. Um, so it takes place during the Korean War. And it's about these two brothers, the Lee brothers, uh, Jang Dong, Gun, and Wan Bin play the brothers. And it starts off, we get to see them before the war. So they're really poor. The younger brother is going to school. And the only way he can afford to go to school is because his older brother, Jin Tae, is paying for it by working at this shoe shine stand. And then when the war kicks off, both brothers are forced to go and fight on the front lines for South Korea. And uh, Jin Tae, he does not want his brother to be in the war. His brother's name's uh, Jin Siok. And so Jin Tae makes a deal with his commanding officer. If he can earn the highest medal assigned to a South Korean officer, uh, then his brother can be sent home. So he's got to go through a harrowing mission to make this happen. I think one of the more interesting things about this movie is that from the jump, you think that the entire movie is going to focus on the younger brother staying alive long enough for the older brother to earn the medal. But he earns the medal like right away. <laughs> and then the movie takes a, a really interesting twist that eventually pits the brothers against one another on the battlefield. Some people might be put off by the emotional core being really forward on this one because it is super sentimental, but I still really love it. The big battle set pieces are really well done. Although it's two, it's 2004 when this came out. So there are some questionable CGI scenes, oh, no. but uh, <laughs> it's, it, yeah, it's good. It's, it's about a war that's rarely represented in American films. And we get to see a different side to the conflict as well. It's um, like some of the other films on my list that we'll see coming up. It's really unflinching in its portrayal of the hell of war. It won all kinds of awards at the South Korean, like a couple of South Korean awards shows. It won Best Picture at the Baekseng Arts Awards and the Blue Dragon Film Awards. And when it came out, it was the highest grossing movie of all time in South Korea until it was unseated a year later. But it's still the 13th gross, like highest grossing film of all time in South Korea. So uh, yeah, if you haven't seen or heard of Taiguki, the Brotherhood of War from 2004, I really recommend it, especially if you like, uh, if you like Saving Private Ryan and you're interested in foreign films, foreign war films, I think this is a, a good starting point. Yeah, there really are not a lot of movies made about wars in the 50s, whether it's the Korean War or the French Indochina War, which sort of like overlaps with the Korean War. It all seems to be, you know, World War Two. And then it's like Hollywood in particular makes World War Two movies up until pretty much the late 60s. And then it switches over to Vietnam. Yep. And then it switches over later on just to like Desert Storm. Yeah, but in such a weird late way. Yeah, that's a good observation. And I had I was trying to come up with American films that took place during the Korean War and I couldn't come up with any without looking it up. Yeah, I so I'll talk about this more when we get to honorable mentions, but one of the few directors to explore that war was Samuel Fuller, who served in World War II. And it was, I think, a really obviously harrowing experience. And so he made a lot of war movies. And two of his first films were 
Korean War themed and uh, French French Indochina War themed, which leads sort of up to the Vietnam War. It's it's kind of like you could see it as an explanation of how we get to the Vietnam War. Number three for me is, I think, one of the most brutal films of... Okay, so my next three choices are three of the most brutal films ever made. (laughs) So they they are not at all sentimental. Um, (laughs) It's the 1969, like resistance epic army of shadows from Jean-Pierre Melville, which takes sort of a different approach to war. I think a lot of kind of conventional war movies and even things like grand illusion tend to focus on soldiers who are either on the battlefield or in prisoner of war camps, but definitely like to be or not to be army of shadows is so much more about the resistance, which you don't really get a lot of resistance stories related to world war one, but it's become such a huge part of the kind of world war two history and myth making. And it was an important, it's so it's a, a big focus of one of the chapters of my world war two book, because there's much like with Hollywood and their kind of war propaganda movies the in the months and years right after world war ii ended france kind of did this thing where they really mythologized the resistance and there are stories of all these people in the population saying oh yes you know i was a resistance fighter when the reality is like five percent of people in france were resistance fighters and most of them either turned a blind eye or were actively collaborating And so in a way, I think because Melville was Jewish and a resistance fighter and, you know, there's plenty of documentation of his involvement in different battles, he made a resistance movie about how just awful resisting is. It's just futile and hopeless. You, you know, have to turn on people working with you you can't trust anyone and it's it's really just such a bleak movie this is one um that i saw when it was re-released so if i remember correctly it was like really really it was essentially impossible to see after its initial release until criterion put it out right yeah it was hard to get a hold of i mean i think unless you were seeing repertory screenings it was hard to find a lot of these European art house movies because they didn't really have much of a popular VHS market and not a lot of them were on or like part of the early DVD wave. Yeah. This one was one that, um, gosh, like you said, really brutal, interesting to watch as you realize all the characters know that they're probably going to end up dead no matter what. Yep. It's it's the opposite of it's like in Saving Private Ryan they they do kind of know that they're probably going to die or there's a good chance but here it's like they know for sure right and they're not on a front they're just like in normal cities and in the countryside which I think makes it yeah. feel even grimmer sure 
you know, my number three is brutal as well, but not in the same sense as yours. This one is another kind of mainstream choice for me, but people who know me know I had to put 2009's Inglorious Bastards on my list. Ten hot eyes forward! My name is Lieutenant Aldo Rain. I need me eight soldiers. We're gonna be dropped into France, dressed as civilians. We're gonna be doing one thing, one thing only. Killing Nazis. Yes, sir! Members of the National Socialist Party conquered Europe through murder, torture, intimidation, and terror. And that's exactly what we're gonna do to them. We will be cruel to the German. And through our cruelty, they will know who we are. They will find the evidence of our cruelty and the disemboweled, dismembered, and disfigured bodies their brothers we leave behind us. And the German will not be able to help themselves from imagining the cruelty their brothers endured at our hands, and our boot heels, and the edge of our knives. Uh, what are your views of Tarantino? Because I'm not familiar with like how you view him. I know there's two kind of extremes when it comes to Quentin Tarantino. Well... I think I'm, it's a little bit hard to describe. So, you know, when Pulp Fiction came out, I was pretty young and I like some of his movies, but I don't really like what he does as a filmmaker. Like definitely, Mm. you know, I saw, I've seen, I think almost all of his movies in the theater and was at least partly entertained by all of them, but overall, I don't like him. I, you know, I think what he does, like best case scenario to me with that kind of filmmaking is when you borrow something, it should feel more like an inspiration. Whereas he just kind of lifts direct things from movies that I love And so it just kind of feels like, okay, well, why would I, why am I not just watching those instead? And (laughs) sure. Inglorious Bastards, I thought was really entertaining. It has some great performances. It has some great character actors. I think it was a real turning point for Brad Pitt because he, I think is at his best when he's a character actor and not when he's supposed to be like a romantic leading man. And he's so funny in the movie, (laughs) but (laughs) I, the, that kind of like revisionist history that he started to get into, I find really distasteful. Oh, that's interesting. I kind of like the revisionist history and it's weird because, well, he's, he's done it a couple times now. He did it with this movie and then he also did it with once upon an, time in Hollywood where just things with the Manson family yeah. did not play out as they did in real life. But I can totally understand why somebody would dislike that aspect for sure. Yeah. It just I, like, I can't quite put my finger on it, but it feels disrespectful to history, I guess. Not that, you know, like, would it be great if this sort of Jewish special forces unit 
blew up a theater full of Nazis, especially high ranking ones. Absolutely. That would have been amazing. (laughs) But I think because of the way it plays out as a comedy and doesn't really present like well-rounded characters, like they're all basically just these kind of two dimensional tropes. It, I think that's where it starts to feel a little kind of gross to me. And while there were parts of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood I liked, that ending I thought was awful. So it, it's it's been kind of hard for me to exactly explain what it is about it that I don't like. But there is this kind of mean-spirited streak in his movies that I think I think it's like he's inspired by exploitation films and is trying to borrow from them. But for some reason, it comes across as a little bit more incel-y than those 70s movies. And maybe that's what I don't like. I know that there are a lot of detractors for this movie, but some of the things that I like, uh, by the way, if you haven't seen it, it is about, well, you you mentioned the the bastards being this group of Jewish American soldiers specifically designed to inject fear throughout Nazi-occupied France during World War II by brutally killing Nazis while leaving one alive to spread the myth. And then the other one, we the other story we follow is that of a uh, French-Jewish teenage girl named Shoshana who ends up running a movie theater in Paris, which, like you said, is targeted by soldiers who want to have a big movie premiere there, which presents an opportunity for revenge for something that happened to Shoshana in her past. I love Christoph Waltz. He's amazing. He's a treasure. So good. And this was like where I first learned about him as Hans Landa. He's he's fantastic in this role as a villain. There's just something so sinister about his delivery that every line he speaks kind of keeps you on edge. And it's also really interesting to me how he's this villain who seems at first so devoted to his cause, but later on as the first sign of personal gain presents itself he's ready to just like drop everything and help himself which is pretty true to history i mean oh yeah yeah no doubt and that's what i find so fascinating about the different portrayals of nazis especially in hollywood movies over the years is i think a lot of the time they're shown to be this you know fanatically devoted force of people who are all kind of brainwashed or evil when in reality most of them were just opportunists and people who Mm -hmm. were given a little bit of power or who tasted a little bit of power and just kind of went mad for it and i I, he's just such a good portrayal of that christoph waltz by the way in one of the best one of my favorite opening scenes i'll say oh it's so good yeah it's so suspenseful He won Best Supporting Actor for this movie, uh, which totally deserved. Like you mentioned, Brad Pitt, I've heard him uh, referred to as a character actor in a leading man's body. It's so true. He's so good. He's like this weird blend of Kentucky and Tennessee uh, playing this character, Aldo Rain, who's just this fucking walking tomahawk ready to just kill any Nazi he comes across. There's a great scene in... Uh, basement tavern that made my top five drinking scenes list that sees Michael Fassbender's character make a dire mistake with regards to the number three. (laughs) Uh, There's a scene that I'm sure you 
don't really love where you get introduced to Hugo Stiglitz just because it like really apes some of those 70s movies. I actually but... I did like it because I okay. really like Til Schweiger, that that actor. Yeah. And I I think the scenes that are my favorite are the scenes with the bastards because they do feel like some of the movies I'm going to talk about in my honorable mentions. It's just like the interweaving of the two stories and how, how unwieldy some of that becomes that I think is where it lost me, but there is some really entertaining stuff in there. Yeah. That, uh, gosh, that drinking scene is one of the most entertaining for me. This one was nominated for eight Academy Awards. It just won the one Best Supporting Actor because The Hurt Locker, another war film, kind of mopped up the awards that year in terms of Best Picture, Director, and Screenplay. Which, if you think about how Hollywood loves propaganda, there's no way anything was going to beat The Hurt Locker. (laughs) Oh, I know. I know. I expected it there. (laughs) It's such a shame, though. Um, Number two for you, Sam. We're getting into uh, our top two here. So number two for me is one that is I don't know if it totally belongs on this list, but it was the inspiration or sort of like the main kernel for my entire book, which is Pasolini's 1975 film Solo, which it's sort of, it is a war movie, but not in a traditional sense. It's sort of about what happens to the more unconventional victims of war. Like there's a lot going on with human trafficking, uh, which is definitely something that happened massively throughout World War II around the world that you don't always hear about or see depicted in these kinds of movies. But if you haven't seen it, it's one of the most notorious films ever made. It's really brutal. Like I, I know that I said Army of Shadows was brutal and it is very depressing, but Solo is actually, you know, extreme transgressive filmmaking and is an adaptation of the Marquis de Sade's 120 Days of Sodom. But it's set in Salo, which was the fascist seat of government for Mussolini during part of World War II. And it's just like a catalog of atrocities, basically. This is one that I have known about for a very long time, and I have never had the courage to watch it. And I watch a lot of fucked up stuff. I watch a lot of like exploitation movies, a lot of stuff that people would shy away from. But for some reason, I just cannot work up the courage to watch this movie. I get it. I do. (laughs) But it's, I think the way it combines these themes of war trauma and how power corrupts and the evils of fascism along with, you know, adapting Saad's epic novel and... Pasolini's philosophical interests. I mean, the movie opens with a recommended reading list, (laughs) which is not really something you ever see. And it's like all philosophical works. So it's not, you know, read this history book or read this novel. And there's really nothing like it. It manages to skirt this sort of line between art house and exploitation. And I think it gives you a sense of how that kind of ultimate power that 
a number of fascist leaders had during World War II, and certainly some of the Soviet leaders had as well, just turns people into monsters. And it makes them regard other people as less than human. So like, it's not literally a movie about the Holocaust, but I think when you watch it and you keep in mind its setting and the fact that its characters are supposed to be these kind of high-ranking fascists, a lot of the subtext is about the horrors of the Holocaust. Um, Okay, Sam, my number two. We're going to go from like extremely dire solo to something that I had a blast with. So again, I'm terrible at segues. I'm a big fan of bonkers movies with plots that go into the absurd. And I had to put at least one less serious film on my list. I had so much fun with this movie from 2018. It's called Overlord. Yeah. Welcome to France. What happened here? Some questions don't have good answers. There's a lot of soldiers out there, and there's only four of us. Find out what's inside that compound. I couldn't believe it, so I went to see it. I forget why or what the circumstances were. I I think I was with a friend and I didn't know what we were going to see. And it was just like, okay, yeah, let's go to the movies. I don't know. I haven't heard of anything that's out, but sure, let's go to the movies. And it wound up being that. And I just had the best time. I also go into movies. I go into almost every movie totally blind. So I'm the same way as you going into this movie. All I know is like there's a World War II aspect to it. So this one's directed by an Australian filmmaker named Julius Avery. It was made for Bad Robot Productions. We kick off the movie during D-Day on a plane with a paratrooper squadron that's tasked with destroying a German radio jammer in an old church. So that's the setup. And it's a really great first scene. Like the plane immediately crashes into this German village. Most of the team dies from either the crash or the German soldiers or the traps like landmines and stuff like that. It's really intense. Like uh, I didn't so I didn't see this in the theater. I saw it on disc, but I cranked up the sound and it was rumbling my house. My subwoofer was kicking. It was it was awesome. And after all this madness, you have four people that are alive and these four guys regroup in the village. You have Corporal Ford, who's played by Wyatt Russell. You have first class Edward Boyce, you have Private Tibbet, and you have Private Chase. By the way, this is the first film where I really looked at Wyatt Russell and thought, holy shit, that that dude is Kurt Russell. Oh my God. He's a young it's, Kurt Russell. It's uncanny. <laughs> when I watched yeah. the movie, I was dying for the movie because like I don't I don't think I noticed his name in the opening credits and was dying for the movie to be over so I could take out my phone and look up who the hell it was. I was like, why did they like CGI a young Kurt Russell in here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like I, I also just like you, I had seen him in things, but only in bit parts. And this is the first time where I got a whole movie of him and I had the exact same response. Like he looks just like Kurt Russell, but these four guys are taken in by this young woman named Chloe. She lives in the village and she's going to help them out. And this is where we first meet the Nazi commander Waffner. He's played by uh, Pilu. I think his last name is pronounced Azbek, 
who American audiences would probably recognize from his role as Euron Greyjoy in the later season of uh, Game of Thrones. Now, there are some hints about experiments going on underneath the church, and that's where things get really wound up, and it turns from a straight-up war film into a science fiction monster movie. Now, um, I know you just you went into it blind just like I did. I think that the movie thought that this was hidden pretty well, but I knew it was coming. Were you the same way oh, where you yeah. kind of knew what was happening? Yeah, and so I knew what was happening, but I also, I think that gave me pause like i i went in because of that opening scene really liking it but once i realized what they were doing i was like oh no this is going to be terrible because i tend to like i love a lot of the weirdo 70s world war ii horror movies but the more recent ones like dead snow i just hated but this Mm. it's like it goes in that direction but it's just so much fun yeah i thought it was really fun too And I read a fairly negative review from Amy Nicholson of Variety, and I'm going to read her quote because these are the things that she didn't like about it, but I really did like about it. She said, even at its most suspenseful, Overlord feels familiar, a collage of cinematic nightmares checking off its influences, a woman wielding a flamethrower like Ripley and Aliens, a cruel SS officer who grins like a Batman villain, and enough Castle Wolfenstein vibes that its fans may find themselves reaching for the controller out of habit. Why is that bad? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, clearly, well, I'm a Tarantino fan, so I love movies that wear its influences on its sleeves, or as Tarantino movies, like, straight up rip them off. Unapologetically, that's also sometimes the way I write the movies that I want to write. But you know what? It's silly. It's bloody. Totally my kind of movie. It's an unapologetic splatter flick which I like. She also called it junk food patriotism. I could see that. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not going to debate that fact, but it also was released at a time right after certain people were looking at Nazi rallies and saying there were good people on both sides. And for me, this came out at just the right time to drive home this this point that Nazis are bad. That the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. Exactly. The only good Nazi is a dead Nazi. So I'm a big fan of Overlord. I think it's just a, a it, it adds a little bit of fun into a topic that is not normally known for being fun. So I had to put it on this list here. And it really, it's like, I know there are a lot of bad video game adaptation movies that especially go into that kind of horror splatter territory. But this is like Castle Wolfenstein, the movie, which how could you not love that? Yeah, exactly. So it's fair to say that you're a big fan of the uh, the rock movie Doom, right? You know what? <laughs> I actually am. <laughs> yes. I know it's bad, but it's so much fun. <laughs> all right, we found her. We found the Doom fan. Yeah, I don't. I don't just like all snobby, depressing European art house <laughs> movies. I, I like a lot of bullshit too. <laughs> I kind of have a guess for our grand finale here for you, but Sam Deegan, number one for you on top five war films. So this movie does have something in common with Overlord, which is its theme that the only good Nazi is a dead Nazi is taken to some real extremes. 
So as you probably have guessed, my number one movie, which I genuinely think is the best war movie ever made, is the 1985 film Come and See. I'm just going to cut in here and say the trailer to Come and See didn't quite work for audio purposes, but I did find a clip of one of the best cinematographers of all time talking about his love for the film. So here's multiple Academy Award winner Roger Deakins on Come and See. Maybe I've got a very dark side. Now, I revisit these films like Come and See or Ivan's Childhood. I regularly watch Mirror. Certain films that challenge you, not just in terms of your perception of the world, but challenge you creatively, the way they use the camera, the way they engage you with the subject and the characters within them. It is a very difficult film, but then films used to be more difficult. Put it this way, films used to be more challenging. You think of Peter Watkins' War Game, or you think of Ivan's Childhood, or Cranes for Flying. I mean, even more commercially accepted films like Strange Love, I don't think there are so many now and that's probably why come and see stands out even more today than it did when it was first made i think it should be compulsory viewing actually because it's the film that nearest depicts certain aspects of the war that i don't think anything else has done really. which is yeah. directed by lm klimov and Sort of like Saving Private Ryan, it does this thing where it presents you with a very visceral experience of war, like just in terms of the gorgeous cinematography, but also these in-camera effects and audio effects. And it's truly one of the few war movies to exist that has no sense of patriotism about it whatsoever and is an anti-war movie through and through while also showing battle scenes. And basically it follows this teenager named Fleora and he sort of wanders through Belarus, which I'll talk about more in a minute, but wanders through Belarus accidentally gets swept up into the Soviet resistance movement, comes across these Nazi atrocities that are just like unimaginable to, to even see on screen as a film spectator. And it's just like gorgeous and poetic and really difficult to watch, but it does have, I would say, this kind of like documentary, like it's it sort of like strikes a balance between surrealism and documentary, but it shows what was going on in Belarus during world war two, which basically Belarus and Poland were the worst places to be on the European front in world war two, the site of the most number of like horrific atrocities and I think that's something that Americans don't really learn about. Like, yes, we hear about, you know, how Poland was occupied and brutalized and death camps were open there. But the stuff going on in Belarus that 
the Einsatzkommando were carrying out, just like locking entire Jewish communities in buildings and burning them alive and standing around watching and joking. Like you see all of that here. So it, I think also has an important historical resonance. This is a one. This is, this was my guess for your number one. I figured based on what we were talking about. Yeah. And this one came very close to making my list. And the only reason it didn't is because I was trying to put movies on that I would enjoy rewatching. <laughs> and this is so, when you say brutal, it is, I mean, Jesus Christ, it is the worst of humanity on screen. And all of it really happened. Yeah, and you leave this movie feeling, uh, well, I left this movie feeling two things. Number one, it's amazing that a movie like this was able to be made or got made in 1985. Well, he had to fight for almost a decade against the Soviet censors because, well, there are a lot of reasons, I think, outside of the you know scope of our brief conversation about it. But basically, right. they didn't like showing any kind of participation in World War II atrocities, which, you know, they were responsible, the Soviets were responsible for many in their own right. And yep. he fought for almost a decade to have this made and it, it is incredible that like i think if he tried to make this in the 60s or 70s it never would have happened at all but because it's so close to the end of the soviet union that's probably why he was able to do it yeah that's a good point and this was his last movie too because of all of that stuff he just like realized i think i think he said he just lost interest in making movies after this came out which once you see it, it's like, well, like watching it is just this kind of horrific numbing experience. And I mean, so it took me a couple years to write my World War II book, partly because my writing career took off and I was just really busy. But part of it was also that once I got to this section on Soviet made cinema and I started having to do like really hardcore research into this area in Poland and Belarus that was sort of the middle between the Nazi forces and the Soviet forces. So like, that's part of why the fighting here was so awful. It honestly, I was so depressed that I had to like put the book down for a year or two. Like it's, and I think the movie captures that feeling. It's like, it's just awful. Yeah. I was going to say, as I left this movie, as you turn it off, it's not like those movies that you watch and then you go get food afterwards. No. It's a movie that you watch and then you're just kind of shaken to the core for a good amount of time. After I watched this, I could not go to sleep. Like I had to try and distract myself because I was so, I was just like fucking not present. Yeah, so I can't imagine the experience of actually shooting this film and then editing it. So no wonder he was like, you know what? I'm good. Yeah, just bounced. This is a, a really great choice for number one. I went with something a little more mainstream for my number one. The themes of the horrors of war are still here, but I'm actually interested to to know where you fall on 1986's Platoon. I volunteered. I dropped out of college and... Told him I wanted the infantry, combat, and Vietnam. 
out of the hole fast! Take the pain. Take the pain! I got a bad feeling on this one, all right? Watch out! Rocket! Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Sheen. No such thing as a coward out here. Don't mean nothing. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon, rated R. Oh, that's a good one. Platoon is one of those movies that... uh, So I haven't seen it in a while. And it just, I think, is kind of a complicated viewing experience because it definitely does have that sort of more mainstream sense of propaganda. But it is also just like, I think it shows how perspectives can be changed. Like once you realize that the Viet Cong are people, which is sort of what happens in this movie, at least from what I remember. Yeah. I think it sort of becomes an anti-Vietnam movie while at the same time still kind of having that Hollywood propaganda vibe, which the score by George Delarue, he is one of my favorite like European art house composers and any score he works on, you just like want to cry the uh, the entire time you hear the music. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah. Fantastic score. This was, uh, I, I have a lot of like film score playlists now on my iPhone, but back in the day, like back in the iPod days, this was the very first score that I ever put on my iPod. It's fantastic. Yeah, this is great. So if you, if you haven't seen platoon, it's about this really green, young, naive recruit named Chris Taylor, played by Charlie Sheen in his best role by far. Oh, yeah. In Vietnam, who finds himself in conflict with both the Vietnamese and two of his commanding officers, Sergeant Barnes, who's this ill-tempered maniac, and the much more reasonable Sergeant Grodin. Um, it's fictional but it's based on a lot of the situations that oliver stone ran into because he himself was a vietnam vet so he went through the war and he's called this movie an exercise in documenting his struggle to keep his own humanity it's got a really really great cast um barnes and groden who i mentioned are played by tom berenger and willem defoe and they're both playing against type which i think is really great to see because like at the time Behringer had always played the really good guy and Defoe, even to this day, I think is really sometimes typecast as a bad guy. But Defoe, to me, is one of the greatest actors of my generation. And I'm so used to seeing him play a bad guy that I think that's why his role is so effective here. I did listen to the commentary on this Blu-ray and Oliver Stone talks about a lot of the tactics that he used to keep the cast on edge to get the best performance out of them. So he used things like sleep deprivation. He had intentional psychotic behavior on set and tried to make the actors hate him to see that come through in the performance. And I think it really worked. Among the other platoon members, you've got Keith David, who is always great. Forrest Whitaker's in here. John C. McGinley, who most people would probably know as Dr. Cox now or as one of the Bobs in um, Office Space. But goddamn, he's great here. A very young Johnny Depp. And uh, Kevin Dillon plays this character named Bunny, who is just terrifying on screen. He's this dude who just wants to burn Vietnam and everything in it, everybody in it to the ground. McGinley talked about in a um, he was in an interview with Rich Eisen, and he was talking about the experience of acting 
in Platoon. And he was saying that Stone purposefully shot the film in a way that was mostly chronological so that when a character died, they immediately left the set for good. So as an actor, you're building camaraderie with these people and then they're just gone. So the long faces at the end of the shoot are like somewhat real. And there was also a threat of military coup in the country they were filming this at the time. So there was a lot of stuff weighing on them. It's um, it's it's a tough watch. It's again one of those movies that doesn't glorify war. And there's a scene in which Chris steps in to save a villager from being raped that was based on an interaction that Oliver Stone himself had when he intervened in an assault. And there's some really tough imagery here. I mean, nowhere near what you're going to see in Come and See, but, you know, they're burning villages down. They are killing people who are probably innocent. It's interesting to see how this movie came out the same year when we talk about, like, extreme jingoism how it came out the same year as top gun oh yeah which is like disgusting just a full celebration (laughs) yeah Yeah, exactly exactly just a pure celebration of the military in that one and then this one comes out during the christmas season and it's just a complete flip of that i think that's really interesting to see it won best picture best sound best director best film editing and was nominated for a couple of other ones including Best Cinematography by Robert Richardson, who uh, he shot Inglorious Bastards. So he's got uh, two nominations for those. He did win three over his career. He won JFK, The Avery, The Aviator, and Hugo. But um, yeah, I love Platoon. I think it's just a, a really harrowing war movie. And if you're like not brave enough to jump into some of Sam's choices, <laughs> like Come and See or like Solo... This one will um, be a more Hollywood version of the the horrors of war and the hell that is um, the hell that is those conflicts. Yeah, I always think it's more interesting to have war films made by people who either lived through a war or served in a war. Like they just feel very different. Yeah, yeah. There's definitely a level of authenticity to them and uh, a, a little less gloss. That's for sure. Yes. Sam Deegan, what were some of those honorable mentions that you're agonizing over not being able to put on a list of just five films? So some of my honorable mentions, um, they're kind of grouped a little bit. So I, you know, I tried to stick mostly with things that were intentionally non-propagandistic, but there are definitely some more kind of propaganda war movies I love things like The Great Escape and Kelly's Heroes and Where Eagles Dare and The Dirty Dozen. Like, in different ways, those movies all kind of glorify war and violence, but they're all great action movies. Yeah. And all just have, you know, they're all kind of made, well, maybe not Great Escape, but the rest of them are all sort of made in the late 60s and early 70s. So they all have this kind of uh, like Vietnam subtext in them as well. And I think that's a really interesting thing that winds up happening in that period is when movies that are about one war actually say these kind of subversive things about another more recent war. Um, Some of my other choices, 
Casablanca, which is one of my favorite movies, and of course is definitely propaganda. I mean, it's about <laughs> it's about this like broken-hearted sad bastard who's devoted himself to being apolitical, though he has a heart of gold and by the end comes around and is like, "Fuck it, I'm going to fight for the resistance." <laughs> it's like, "Okay." I totally but- forgot about that one. I love that movie. It's great. Um But I think it does have that same kind of thing as some of the movies on my list where it doesn't always immediately register in your brain as a war movie because it's not like there aren't soldiers as protagonists. There's no like battleground set, but it's definitely a war film. Um, And then the other two last ones, MASH, which is one of my favorites and is another really downbeat movie, but did come out of Hollywood. Um, my grandfather served in a mash unit. So we would watch the movie together and especially the TV show. And he would kind of tell me about his experiences a little bit, which he definitely did not like talking about, but it seems, it seems like both are pretty accurate. Sure. And the last one is the Samuel Fuller movie, China gate that I mentioned, which is about, uh, war in Vietnam, the French Indochina War. And I also felt like I had to give that one a plug because I just did a commentary for it for this Australian label called Imprint. And it's, yeah. it's so dark. But also, if you've never seen any 50s Hollywood movies, they're like, brace yourself for some racism. Like Lee Van Cleef <laughs> plays a... Uh, basically a Viet Cong leader. <laughs> it's it's mm-hmm. wild. Mm-hmm. But it's a it's it's a great movie that at its heart is very anti-war and also extremely and it has all of these anti-racist themes. He just was sort of stuck with Hollywood's casting system. Well, I'll have to check that out. I'll I'll have to order that. That one's um sh- I'm sure it's region B. Um coming from imprint it might be i know i i think so a lot of the the i work randomly for a lot of british labels and i know a lot of them have started this push to also releasing their films as region a so that they can be sold in the u.s and i want to say imprint have started doing the same thing but i'm not totally sure i'm sure um uh, Brian from Just the Discs will, <laughs> will tell us when it, oh, is, yes. when it comes out, if it's A or B. Cool. Um, some of my honorable mentions, like I mentioned, Come and See. Uh, Life is Beautiful was on my short list, which also came out in 1998. Jojo Rabbit, I think, is a really interesting war movie. I don't know how you feel about that one. But, I haven't um, seen that one yet. And it wasn't really an, an intentional avoidance. I think I just missed it when it came out in the theater, but I do think he's an int- a more like, yes, he's a mainstream filmmaker, but he also does some interesting things and is quite funny. Yeah, it's very funny, uh, which is weird because when you see the synopsis of a kid that has Hitler as an imaginary friend, it's, it's tough to imagine that coming to life, but it is, it's hilarious. And it's one of these movies that it's, that made me almost cry from laughter, but definitely made me cry from just like agony. Uh, really, really good. If you do decide to watch it, let me know what you thought of it. Oh, I definitely will. I just have to find the time. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Uh, Full Metal Jacket, I almost put on my list, but I felt it was very similar in theme to Platoon. Dead Presidents was one that I wanted to put on my list, but it doesn't like it's about war, but it's kind of uh, the first half is really in the war. The second half is about the effects of war. Same with Coming Home, which was more about the effects of war afterwards. And then one I, I was really I wanted to get clever on one and I almost almost put Starship Troopers oh, on my list. I so I almost put Starship Troopers on my list too. I am a huge fan of his. I think all of his movies are brilliant. I mean uh, I know that they're definitely among more mainstream cinema fans. I think sometimes people just don't understand things like you know, showgirls and starship troopers, but I think Verhoeven is brilliant. Hundred percent agree. And that movie is so funny. Yeah, it's so funny. You you have to really watch it as a comedy, making fun of war movies and and the military to get the most out of it. Sam Deegan, great list. I have five Criterion discs and an imprint disc now that I have to buy. I'm sorry. So thanks for <laughs> draining my wallet. Where else can people find your work? I, I know this is kind of a dumb question considering I'm going to have links in the show notes, but where do you want people to go to check out more of your stuff? I think the easiest way to find me is, so I'm on Instagram and Twitter, but not really on social media as much. So probably more so Instagram. Um, because I don't have a website, I tend to use my Patreon for that. So I'll do like public posts. So like if you want to find out what I've been up to and where you can find my work, you can go there and you don't have to be a subscriber to see those things. Um, definitely you can find the legacy of world war two and European art house cinema at pretty much every major book retailer because it was published through McFarland and Twitch of the Death Nerve, you can find us on Instagram. You can find our show early on my Patreon, but we're also on Apple and Spotify and on the Cinepunks Network. Listeners, there are a gluttony of war films out there. Let me and Sam Deegan know on social media what we missed. At Force5Pod on Twitter and at Force5Podcast on Instagram. And your comment might just make it to the show. If you liked what you heard, please review the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It makes a big deal to me. I'm going to start reading some of these reviews on the air. And while you're at it, tell your friends to listen so they can become listeners too. Intro and outro bumpers today come courtesy of Nate Spears. The top five list bumper was produced by me with music from Audio Binger. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and go watch some awesome war movies. Oh, that old loud mouth magazine! They got the scoop, they'll tell you.